The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. This is uh, Ori Hample on America's Web Radio, and welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, this uh, Doctor's Lounge radio show is where we discuss topics that would often be discussed in the physician lounge in the hospital, period. Anyway, so um, we had a few little technical difficulties, but we hope we worked them all out this, uh, this morning. Anyway, I wanted to uh, discuss uh, several topics which don't usually come up. Uh, one of them definitely comes up in the doctor's lounge, and that has to with seasonality. So, um, seasonality, what does that have to do with medicine? Well, we, we know there's always all kinds of seasons. There's football season, baseball season, basketball season. Uh, we also know that in medicine, there's seasonality with uh, disease processes, such as flu season. We know that this is now flu season. We almost never see flu in June or July, but December, January, February, we see a lot of flu. So let's talk about a seasonality that we usually do not talk about, um, not specifically pertaining to my field, where in my field uh, we have, uh, I live in Houston, and I'm a urologist, and uh, um, and we have uh, pretty hot weather that starts around May and ends around October. And so for us, those months are called stone season because that is when people make kidney stones. And uh, But I do not want to talk about that specific season. I want to talk about the financial season in medicine. And we're in it right now. We're just entering it uh, uh, full steam ahead. And that has to do with the end of the year, the way healthcare is financed, and the way uh, patients utilize their health insurance coverage. What happens is, and we see this more and more uh, pronounced from year to year as patients' deductibles and coinsurances increase, and we find that at the end of the year, any patient that may have had a procedure or testing that ate into their deductible or killed their deductible, uh, wants to have whatever they need to have done before the end of the year because come January 1, the patients usually have their deductibles reset. Now, for Medicare patients, that deductible is a couple hundred bucks. But for people who might be on some of the Obamacare plans, those deductibles can exceed six, seven thousand dollars. That is extremely significant to patients because as physicians, we take an oath to first do no harm. We need to also remember that along with that should be first do no financial harm. So this is a very typical scenario in, in my field, uh, for example. Uh, and I'm sure this is applicable in all surgical subspecialties and in many medical subspecialties where a perfect example uh, would be I have a, uh, a collection of patients that during kidney stone season made stones. Some of them are fairly large and require staged procedures where multiple procedures are needed to render the patient stone free. Well, those patients might be walking around with temporary ureteral stents, which can be uncomfortable, and uh, and often are. And those patients want to resolve their healthcare episode before January because then their new deductibles kick in. Um, and those deductibles, again, the, the, on the low end in commercial insurance, uh, might be thousand or fifteen hundred. In the high end, it could be five thousand to ten thousand dollars. That's a significant expense. So, if the patient's already met their deductibles because they had an emergency room visit, a CAT scan, a, uh, a surgery or two, 
then it is in their best financial interest to get whatever done, uh, whatever they need done to get it finished and completed before the end of the year. So what we find is this season, and especially in December and definitely in the last couple of weeks of December, we, uh, we try to help our patients to the best of our abilities and bend over backwards in order to uh, be able to accommodate their surgeries and, uh, you know, protect their wallets as best we can. So, basically, the role of physicians is to understand this. So, referring physicians such as uh, internists or emergency room physicians need to work with whatever specialist to try to get those patients in as early as possible in December or in November so that we can get them scheduled and, and, and their episodes finished before the end of the year and before they need a new deductible. Also, if a patient this time of year has a new medical problem come up and they haven't met their deductible and come January, they're going to have a brand new $5,000 deductible, well, it may make sense to maybe visit with a specialist, but do some financial planning because if they need a couple of procedures, if it's not emergent, if it may be urgent, medically necessary, but not emergent, you may want to hold off on actually performing that surgery, doing that testing until January, which is just a month away, because whatever you do now will go into this year's deductible, and then as soon as January 1 hits, you got a new deductible. So we as physicians need to discuss be cognizant of this and think about this when we're scheduling patients for surgeries and procedures and diagnostic tests. And the patients need to be educated about their own coverage so that they can protect their own wallet. Okay. That is one seasonality. It has to do with deductible season. The second seasonality, which is actually happening right now, is has to do with medical plan enrollment. And one turns on the television, uh, we are, we can see that, uh, we are inundated with ads for various Medicare Advantage plans and Medicare plan selection. Because right now we're in the season where patients can choose their healthcare plan under Medicare for the following year. And for the majority of patients, whatever plan they choose right around this time, they will have until the end of the following year. Now, this is very important to senior patients for a number of reasons. Reason number one has to do with access to care. I will give you an example. There's a healthcare system in the Houston, greater Houston area that uh, has been in business for many decades. They have excellent physicians. They have a great reputation. They advertise well. And um, there were patients that uh, ended up having a relationship with this healthcare system via their employer and various employer plans, and some just chose them based on reputation. And what happened was is that physicians that work in the healthcare system that used to be stakeholders and investors in it um, became a minority and this uh, healthcare system was sold uh, at least once and uh, the people that are in charge of it realized there is more money in selling insurance and managing insurance as related to healthcare than actually providing care because of the healthcare dollar in the United States of America less than 10%, way less than 10%, actually goes to pay physicians. In other words, actually goes to care by doctors for the patient. Uh, the rest of the healthcare dollar goes to facilities and laboratories and pharmacies and, of course, insurance company administration and profits. So the healthcare system basically told their patients that we are producing a Medicare 
Advantage product, and we will give you a choice. You can change to our Medicare Advantage product, or you can leave. Well, some patients, all their doctors were in that healthcare system, and they said, well, that doesn't matter to me, and they changed to the healthcare product. Other patients had physicians that they liked within that healthcare system, but they also had physicians outside the healthcare system, and they wanted to maintain those relationships. And many of those patients uh, ended up choosing to remain with their Medicare plans or Medicare and Medigap plans, uh, Medicare Advantage plans that uh, have a wider network, and uh, left the system and ended physician-patient relationships sometimes of decades. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because this healthcare system exists today in the Houston area, but their physicians only go to basically one one hospital. So when their patients are ill in the periphery of Houston, and Houston is extremely large, they go to whatever emergency room and get admitted to whatever hospital. And that actual healthcare system doesn't have any physicians of their own, and definitely not any physician that knows the patient that takes care of the patient. So there is no continuity of care between the physicians that take care of the patient as an outpatient on an ongoing basis and the physicians that take care of the patient once they are hospitalized. So why am I saying all this? Because because the physician-patient relationship is very important. It's very important to the patient because it uh, prevents unnecessary testing. It also prevents problems and complications because when a physician knows a patient's history, then they also know the patient's prior issues and prior problems and can avoid the patient experiencing new problems when that can occur when a physician doesn't know the patient is looking at uh, a computer and examining patient anew without knowing prior details of what might have happened that it may not be evident in a medical record and definitely is not going to be in a medical record that's within a hospital because it is in the clinic notes that is outside the hospital. The second reason that this is very important uh, for patients about choosing Medicare plans is because every January uh, the formularies change for medications. And so some patients may be on certain medications come January, they may not be able to maintain those medications may have to change their uh, pharmaceutical regimen around. And sometimes that's a good thing. Often that is a bad thing. Sometimes it's a neutral. So when patients are shopping around for Medicare Advantage plans, they need to be cognizant of not only will they have an access, access to their various doctors and various specialists the next year under the new plan or even under the current plan, and also will they be able to stay on the same medications or will their current medications become more expensive? Will they become cheaper? So where I think most physicians fail in in, in being able to help patients with this is that we physicians really don't necessarily have the knowledge of exactly how all these plans work what are their various nuances? Uh, as a general rule, I think uh, it's important to know where the healthcare dollar goes. So the old adage of follow the money is important because it's where that healthcare dollar goes and how that insurance is administered may give a clue to the patient and to the doctor about what may be best for the patient for future care. Okay. Um, so that is what I wanted to talk about seasonality. Okay. Now it'll, the doctor's lounge, uh, radio show is, is named after the doctor's lounge that's found in every hospital. There is absolutely no more, uh, you, you can, you can, it is very difficult to find a more negative environment than the doctor's lounge in a hospital. This is where doctors go to hang out or wait to do surgeries or eat. And uh, 
the people that they see there are other doctors. I mean, doctors get together. The main thing that they do is complain. Now, we have a lot to complain about in the healthcare system, absolutely, uh, and in the healthcare industry. Uh, but let us not turn the Doctors' Lounge radio show into that same negative environment, and let's look for some silver lining. So that's what I'd like to do today. Uh, at our uh, uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation, uh, put on the uh, our annual uh, direct primary care conference uh, last month. And uh, we were able to do that through generous grants from the Physician Foundation. And this was truly an incredible conference. We hadn't had one for three years because of COVID. And we had excellent attendance, and like 80% of the attendees were first-timers, were, first, were physicians uh, that for the first time uh, came to a direct primary care conference to learn about this business model of being able to provide primary care to patients on a membership model basis without invoking insurances uh, or government or other controlling entities where the relationship is between the physician and the patient both financially and healthcare wise and where patients have control and uh, really uh, decrease the cost of health care dramatically and improve the quality of health care uh, delivery. And so Mike Karuchek, um, one of the board members of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, and he, he's uh, uh, hosted uh, countless radio shows on this show, um, Mike Karuchek uh, gave a talk in discussing the that uh, it is important that we focus on, on, on positivity. And even though we all can spend 25 hours a day complaining about various problems with healthcare in the United States of America, we need to look at silver linings and look to see where things are good and where things are really incredible in our country. Um, and I wanted to point out uh, a few of these things. So in the late 1990s, uh, a revolution happened in advertising, and that was that the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry went directly to patients and started advertising on television. This really started with the Viagra ads. Why did Pfizer choose to do this? Well, because Viagra was a new medication. It was not going to be covered by any insurance plan, and it was going to be prohibitively expensive, which at the time was $12 a pill, we all know that there are medications now that cost over $100 a pill for some expensive cancer medication, and uh, but it was $12 a pill. And uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industry went directly to the patient. Uh, the silver lining there is that it provided excellent material for uh, stand-up comedians. And uh, we have laughed at countless jokes. Uh, that had to do with Viagra. Of course, there's the negative part where a pharmaceutical industry, uh, company is directing care and uh, suggesting medications to patients where some physicians feel that that should really come from the doctor. I do not want to belabor that point, but what happened with that is it allowed patients to know about new medications and new technology. So let me discuss one of the new technologies that is now advertised to patients that uh, improves patients' quality of life that uh, patients may not have otherwise known about. Uh, in my field, in urology, we, uh, we have a saying that everybody's born pre-op. So at some point, if you live long enough, you will encounter a urologist. Uh, so for men... We know that uh, as long as we live, uh, our prostates will grow. And so as the prostate grows, it wraps around the urethra, the urinary channel, and blows down the urinary stream. So usually the front line of treatment usually involves medication. But medications don't actually change significantly the anatomy. They improve urination by affecting the prostate, but they don't make it go away. And... In my 30 years of being involved, 
in uh, since medical school. Uh, I have seen all kinds of technologies come and go uh, for managing a large prostate. The gold standard remains a transuther section of the prostate or a rotor rooter, and that's an invasive surgery, which has excellent results and a very low complication rate, and this has been done you know, for going on 100 years. Uh, there have been some technological nuances that make that operation safer, uh, but uh, um, but that is the gold standard and the last step. So I've seen all kinds of different treatments that come for uh, to manage prostates, from lasers of various sort uh, that either uh, treat the prostate itself, the tissue of the prostate, or that get rid of tissue of the prostate. Uh, we've seen balloon dilation of the prostate, which was a failure. Uh, we've seen stents put in the urethra, which had all kinds of disasters associated with them. And uh, a little over five years ago, I uh, was invited to go to dinner to look at a new technology that came to the United States, which was previously in Europe. And that technology is advertising now on television. And one may have seen the uh, firefighting boat that uh, has all kinds of sprays, excellent sprays, um, uh, discussing flow. Well, that, that procedure is called Urolift, and I have incorporated this into my practice and have done hundreds of them. And this is a technology that is incredible. Um, it is not for everybody. So patient selection is very important because the properly selected patient has a very high probability of doing very well. Uh, with this modality. And what it does is it's just incredible mechanical technology, no electricity required for the actual device, just for the scope. And uh, we push the prostate over, and it puts in uh, kind of like a retention bolster, and it pushes the prostate tissue away from the urinary channel. And it has excellent results. And... Uh, Surgery for the prostate has have been done for so long and under so many modalities, and this is a fairly simple concept with a sophisticated mechanically engineered device that really improves patients' health, allows that procedure to be done often in the office settings and avoid the expenses of hospitalization and uh, surgery and avoid complication of anesthesia, um, and this is an excellent advance. Um, let me discuss uh, additional advances, but we will first uh, take a break, and we will return after the break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge Radio program. I am uh, Dr. Ori Hample. I'm a urologist in the greater Houston area. And uh, we're discussing positive topics, topics where uh, the... Uh, 
uh, our healthcare system, our healthcare economy, our healthcare technology has uh, made great advances and improved uh, patients' lives. And um, such technology that I want to discuss that I've had experience with um, has been the utilization of a patient-administered analgesia. And uh, this was introduced to me in the last couple of years. And this is basically a new twist on old technology. The old technology is nitrous oxide. So, um, um, uh, so not, uh, I know that uh, when I was in college, I had uh, fraternity brothers that used to do whippets. They used to uh, utilize nitrous uh, in an unsafe manner and uh, to obtain a high. Um, and but that was dangerous because they weren't they were breathing nitrous directly without any oxygen. So they sort of pass out a little bit and then they start breathing and then everything went fine. But that's not the way we really want to do things in healthcare. So there, there is a a uh, company to put together uh, a product called Pronox, and this has really changed a lot of what I do for office procedures uh, for the better for the patient. Uh, I'll give you an example. As a urologist, I do vasectomy, so I can do vasectomy with uh, straight local anesthesia um, and regional anesthesia. But uh, that's a little bit painful. Um, the uh, needle sticks are not pleasant, and the actual local anesthetic burns and hurts. And then there is uh, the sensation of uh, pulling on testicles, which is not what most people uh, consider fun. So for many years, we used to give uh, offer the patients um, a benzodiazepine, a, like Ativan or Valium. And that used to relax the patient and make the experience better. The problem is that that doesn't have any, and those medications do not have any analgesic qualities. They don't help with any pain. And uh, they also can cause changes. And I could tell you at least three examples where I had a patient have seizure-like activity and side effects that were very scary from those medications. And when that happens in a doctor's office setting, it's scary, but when that happens, when the patient's uh, uh, wife drives them home, uh, that's really scary. Well, so along comes Pronox. And what that is, is uh, we have two tanks. One is oxygen, one is nitrous oxide. And, uh, and the machine mixes them. And the patient administers it themselves and actually breathe in this mixture of, uh, that contains oxygen for safety, and the patient controls, based on their own anxiety and discomfort, how much gas they are actually breathing in. And so what happens is, is we have the patient uh, gas up for a few minutes, and then we proceed with doing our vasectomy. Well, this gas has analgesic qualities and, and helps with discomfort, and it also has makes the patient happy because this is laughing gas that the dentists have been using for years. And so it improves uh, their experience. And then the positive thing is as soon as that procedure is done, the patient starts breathing room air, and within a few minutes, the nitrous effect is gone. The patient is wide awake. They're actually safe to drive themselves home. And um, the uh, patient experience is greatly enhanced. So what is the cost of this technology? I think my break even is around 150 bucks. So we see the patients get charged anywhere from 150 to 250 dollars, but uh, it allows us to do so many things. It allows, first of all, it allows us to do procedures on a safer basis. The second thing that allows us to do is it allows us to sometimes do procedures that the patient may have been reticent or afraid to do in the office setting. And allow the patient, and, and therefore the patient would have had this procedure done in the operating room setting in a surgery center or a hospital where they have to pay for anesthesia and facility fees and the expense rises tremendously. This allows us to do some of those procedures in the office setting and really save the patient a lot of money. So that technology is called Pronox and that is 
nitrous has been a gas, laughing gas has been used by dentists and anesthesiologists for countless decades. But now with this new technology that adjusts the mixing and allows the patient to administer their own analgesia, um, it uh, improves the, the day-to-day care that we provide to the patient, making it safer and more tolerable. All right, let me talk about another technology. This is a technology I have not seen that's advertised on television. I found out about it through, an uh, through a different method. And this has to do with in-house rehabilitation. So, for example, uh, this doesn't apply to urology uh, for the most part, but it definitely applies to orthopedics and could apply to cardiac and other areas in medicine where, for example, if a patient has a knee replacement or hip replacement, um, we know that it's critical that the patient has uh, rehabilitation to improve functionality and bring them back to functional status uh, that is maximized. So what this is, is there's a company called Romtech, R-O-M-T-E-C-H, and that company makes a basically a fancy computerized exercise bicycle that uh, has uh, all kinds of feedback mechanisms. It has telemedicine built in for supervision, and it's put in the patient's home. And then the patient basically sits in this stationary bicycle and pedals away with varying resistances. And then the physician, the physiatrist, the orthopedist, then can adjust the various resistances and can closely monitor, because this is basically a bicycle with a tremendous amount of technology attached, then and allows to guide the patient through the rehabilitation process uh, in their home. So this saves the cost of transportation. Uh, when COVID happened, it meant that the patients could stay home and didn't need to be exposed to viruses that they obviously didn't want uh, to be uh, exposed to. Uh, it also means that the patient can then do rehab on their own schedule uh, and can do it multiple times a day. Uh, so this is technology where we take the concept of rehabilitation, it's combined with telemedicine uh, that was really before telemedicine uh, exploded during COVID, um, and allows for uh, much improved outcomes uh, because of increased compliance, because it's much easier to rehabilitate if you're in your home uh, than having to go to a facility. Uh, not saying that one is not going to need to go to a facility or be monitored or be evaluated hands-on, uh, but it means that in between those evaluation sessions, the patient can do far more rehabilitation uh, and improves the patient's access to care and potentially improves their care. But the key to this is this is not patients doing it on their own. They're monitored in a telemedicine platform that's built into the device, uh, so it's, it is uh, well-guided. All right, let me switch gears. So when, you, when one turns on the television, the, uh, uh, it is... We see a lot of pharmaceutical ads, medical product ads, but more importantly, pharmaceutical ads, uh, or significantly pharmaceutical ads. Uh, this is, of course, to the point of annoying, uh, being annoying, because virtually it seems that all advertisements are for something related to healthcare uh, on television today. Um, now, it does make for discussions uh, about the naming of medication. And some of them uh, border on the absurd. Uh, and for uh, those that are not the best of spellers, uh, spelling out some of these medications that include Qs and Ys and Zs and Xs uh, could be a challenge. But let's talk about one of these new medications that I just learned about in the last couple of months. This medication does not have any applicability in my practice as a urologist, but uh it is a uh, breast cancer medication, and I want to discuss this because it's truly incredible what uh, the the prowess of the American technological uh, innovation capability um, has been able to manufacture. So 
many of these medications that one sees uh, advertised are uh, uh, have have something to do with antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, antibodies that are very specific to certain proteins or certain receptors. Um, so the field of molecular biology was its, was was in its infancy when I was uh, doing my biochemistry major in the 1980s. And uh, um, my molecular biology textbook uh, for my biochemistry major was uh, basically uh, less than half an inch thick. Uh, my uh, uh, We were barely learning about the concept of PCR, preliminary chain reaction, uh, procedures. Of course, we know PCR now is routine. Uh, my daughter ran PCR tests when uh, she was uh, a freshman in high school uh, in their science course. Um, PCR was used to test for COVID. Um, this is now widespread technology. But this explosion of technology had allowed uh, uh, physicians and the medical industry to learn so much more about the biology of of normal and abnormal health and uh, of course various disease processes involve inflammation and cancers so uh, pharmaceutical companies have been able to develop uh, targeted therapy actual antibodies that go uh, and attack a specific molecule specific receptor and be able to actually affect disease processes and um, I learned about uh, a new medica- a relatively new medication which has uh, a new indication. Um, and this is a, a fascinating medication because, for example, uh, it, it has applicability to the, um, to, to the disease process of breast cancer. And so uh, breast cancers uh, can uh, uh, express uh, a variety of receptors. And so people know that you can have an estrogen receptor, for example, and those those uh, cancers can be treated with various medications that remove estrogen or block that receptor. Um, there's also a less known receptor uh, to the public, um, and that's called the HER2 receptor, H-E-R-2 receptor. And, um, and that receptor can be expressed on certain breast cancer cells. Well, there's uh, a medication that's a monoclonal antibody that can attach to that uh, receptor. Um, what uh, pharmaceutical uh, researchers have been able to do is take that antibody and attach to it a chemotherapy molecule. And so we all know people that have had breast cancer and have had systemic chemotherapy, and uh, there's all kinds of side effects with chemotherapy, and of course there have been advances in medicine with all kinds of adjuvant drugs to make chemotherapy more tolerable and not as severe as it was in the past. Um, but but the incredible thing about this particular medication that I'm thinking about and learned about is that there's a monoclonal antibody attached to this chemotherapy molecule. And so it is infused, and the molecule, the antibody molecule, is is attached, attaches itself almost exclusively to these breast cancer cells then the breast cancer cells take up this molecule that's attached to a chemotherapy molecule. And once it's inside the cell, the cell degrades the antibody and is left with a molecule of chemo. And then uh, that chemo, and if there's multiple receptors and there's going to be multiple uh, chemo molecules to that cell specifically, and then the chemo literally kills the cancer cell alone. And then the chemotherapy is then released and can kill some cells around there, like other cancer cells, and of course some healthy cells around. But because this is targeted therapy, it is like a guided missile that literally enters specific cells in the body and spares the rest of the body or the majority of the body from having to be subjected to chemotherapy. Um, and when one thinks of this type of technology that we can, we have technology now and the molecular biology expertise uh, as a science 
to, and it's no longer just in the lab. It's actually now treating patients where we can first diagnose the cancer, then evaluate that cancer on the molecular level, on the individual cell molecular level, and then have actual medication that can, like a guided missile, attack that cell particularly and kill that cell particularly and spare the rest of the body. That is just unbelievable technology. And when I was in medical school in the 1980s, this was science fiction. And today, this kind of therapy is reality. Now, this, uh, of course, this comes at a cost. So, yes, this is a silver lining. It's a silver lining in the disease process that uh, sometimes would condemn a patient to death where now these patients can have treatment and success in life. Uh, that is incredible. Of course, it's extremely costly. So these new medications and these uh, targeted therapies, as they're called, for various diseases, from inflammatory bowel disease to lupus to uh, asthma to various kinds of medication of, of diseases, uh, these new medications are extremely expensive. And when I say extremely expensive is we're talking possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. So this brings us back to the criticism of the American healthcare system and industry is that it's extremely costly, is that we uh, in America um, don't have uh, the public health outcomes that are, that are measured in other countries and that uh, they spend less money and have at least equivalent or better outcomes. That is complete and total nonsense. That is a distorted uh, propaganda because we all know that when there is a dignitary that is sick in Canada that where there's a socialized healthcare system, that dignitary comes to America to get their care if they want to, if they want to live and if they want to have the best outcomes. Um, when I trained in the Texas Medical Center, we had dignitaries from the, from various countries, such as the Middle East, um, where, that, uh, came to the Texas Medical Center specifically because they wanted to live and they, money to them was no object and, uh, they wanted the best care. And that's what we have in America. We have the best care. Yes, we need to do better about access. Part of doing better about that to that access has to do with uh, undistorting the distorted healthcare economy, uh, removing third parties, and allowing doctors and patients to have a direct financial relationship without a third party. We know, and we've proven, and we've discussed countless times on the Doctor Lounge Radio Show how free market medicine uh, improves quality, improves access, and decreases cost. We found uh, on this on this show that for most people, health care is not expensive. Health care through the distorted American uh, insurance guided and government guided health care economy is very expensive. But having said all that, let's look at the positive point. The positive points is we do incredible things in the American medical system, and today. We have patients live that would have never lived before. Here's another example. When I was in medical school and I learned about pancreatic cancer, the statistic that I learned in the 1980s and 90s was that from the time of diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, 95% of patients will be dead in six months. That is not true today. That is not true today. Today, there are various chemotherapy, radiation, and surgical protocols that patients with pancreatic cancer live. So as I go through my uh, routine as a physician, as a urologist, I look at kidneys and look at various internal organs, and I have patients that might end up with pancreatic cancer. And uh, I've had countless patients with pancreatic cancer. And uh, the, some of them 
were discovered in an advanced state and succumbed very quickly to their disease. But that number of 95% dead in six months, that is ancient history. Uh, with the technology and the treatments and the drugs and the advances in radiation uh, and advances in surgical techniques um, and products that we de- develop here in America, um, patients with pancreatic cancer are often cured, uh, often have a significantly uh, lengthened quality and quantity of life um, and be able to survive and uh, uh, stay with their families and enjoy life. So I want to talk about one uh, one more example of a patient of mine. <clears throat> this is a patient that uh, well over 20 years ago, I want to say probably 23, 24 years ago, uh, I was consulted about uh, this patient who was in his 40s um, and uh, he, he had blood in the urine, was worked up, and was found to have uh, a kidney tumor that was almost the size of a football. Uh, we did a, a major surgery. We did a thoracobdominal incision. Uh, this was in the late 1990s, around the year 2000. And uh, uh, we cut through his chest and abdomen and diaphragm. We took this huge tumor out. They got an excellent pathology result. Said that we got all the cancer that was visible at the time. So a few years later, uh, this patient, uh, as we were following him, as we do with all our cancer patients, we noticed that he had nodules in his chest, and uh, some of them, well, one was biopsied, and he had metastatic kidney cancer to his lung. But what happened was that we were able to buy him enough time that in the around the year 2005 or a little bit later, uh, whenever his metastatic disease was diagnosed. Um, that also coincided with having various new medications to treat metastatic kidney cancer. So the medical science and pharmaceutical industry was able to develop medications that treat advanced kidney cancer that's metastatic. Prior to that, when I was in medical school um, in the 1980s, if one had metastatic kidney cancer, um, the the only recommended course of treatment was a fishing pole. Here, take the fishing pole and enjoy the rest of your short life. Well, nowadays, so in the late 1990s, there were various immunotherapies that were developed for advanced kidney cancer and metastatic kidney cancer. And so this patient was put on some of those. And then as he, and he responded, and then he started to fail response. But by the time he failed the response, the pharmaceutical industry outsmarted some of these cancers and had newer medications available. And so he was put on newer medication and he responded and he responded for a number of years and then he failed to respond. But by that point in time, there was yet another new medication that could attack and modify and affect the course of his kidney cancer. So this was a man that when he was in his 40s, and in the prime of his work life, around the year 2000, was diagnosed with a disease that basically had a death sentence. And what has happened is this patient recently retired from his job in the chemical industry at the age of 65, because that's when he chose to retire. He looks healthy. He has metastatic kidney cancer that he's been uh, living with for the last, 15 plus years, going on 20 years, but he has an excellent quality of life. He has no pain. He finished out his career. He travels. He is enjoying his retirement. And this can only be done with the the advances in technology. And nowhere in the world except in America are we able to have advances in technology at the instrumentation level, at the pharmaceutical level, uh, at the diagnostic level, uh, in comparison to any other country. Do we have a distorted healthcare economy? Yes. Does the distorted healthcare economy uh, provide care at very expensive rates that is unreasonable? Absolutely. Uh, should there be changes to the healthcare delivery system, 
that eliminate third parties and improve quality and decrease cost? Absolutely, and he, we at Docs for Patient Care Foundation are in the forefront of that, promoting direct primary care and cash-based uh, surgical services and specialty care and diagnostic care where we uh, notice that the cost curve is not is not bent downward but shattered downward. Um, absolutely. But when you have a healthcare economy with so many dollars flowing through it, it also incentivizes innovation because these pharmaceutical industries, these instrumentation industries, uh, they know that if they develop a product and if the product is good and if the product helps people, then the free market system will require, will request, will demand access to that technology. And what we see is we see patients that have their lives improved and patients that have their healthcare experience improved. And also we see patients that live longer. When I was a resident in the 1990s in the Texas Medical Center, uh, doing my residency at Baylor College of Medicine, we didn't see very often a patient that was over 80 years old. We saw patients that were in their 80s, but not like we do today. problem with those patients is they had a difficult time driving into the Texas Medical Center. They stayed in their communities or they just passed away. But I can tell you that now in my practice, I see patients in their 90s all the time. Yesterday, I did surgery to improve the life of a 93-year-old who turned 94 today. So for his 94th birthday, that patient will be urinating better. And 25 years ago when I went into practice, one would have never thought that I can operate on somebody in their 90s and improve their quality of life. This is a patient that talks. This is a patient that's living. There's no reason we can't extend his quality and his quantity of life. Well, this has been the Doctors' Lounge radio show. Um, please go to docsforpatientcarefoundation.org to our website. Please donate so we can continue to provide these shows, provide information to physicians and to patients, and continue to fight for access to excellent health care at an affordable price forever. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.